This is the official podcast of the WCD. That's a World Congress of Dermatology which will be held next in Singapore in 2023. I am Dr. Etienne Wang from the National Skin Centre of Singapore and I will be your host for this podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts and wherever else you get your podcasts. In this podcast, I will bring on dermatologists and skin researchers from all over the world to talk about all things dermatology. And today I have one of our resident dermatologists, Ellie, back with a derm topic for discussion again. Hi, Ellie. Hi, it's good to be back again. Hi, yes. And you have something to discuss with us today? I thought we could discuss about vitamin D and its role in skin diseases. Cool. It's quite a controversial topic and there seems to be a lot of skin diseases that are associated with vitamin D. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? So maybe before going to the clinical studies, I thought I'd just share a bit about the pathophysiology so we can understand why vitamin D has been postulated to be associated with skin disease. So in the skin, the vitamin D receptor actually interacts with the retinoid X receptor, and this complex regulates the expression of various genes. So overall, vitamin D has anti-proliferative effects, such as through inhibiting keratinocyte proliferation and promoting differentiation. And I guess this is probably similar to the mechanism that calcipotriol, which is a vitamin D analog, um, how that works in psoriasis. So for skin diseases, actually the most well-studied association is that with atopic dermatitis. The results are quite heterogeneous and controversial, like you said, but in the meta-analysis of 11 studies, they do find that patients with AD actually have a lower vitamin D level compared to controls. And in a smaller number of controlled trials, they found that patients, when supplemented with oral vitamin D, actually had improved score compared to the controls. But there were also some contradictory studies that also showed no association with AD and vitamin D levels and no improvement with oral replacement. So I'm not really sure what to make of it. I wonder what you think and have you has this changed your clinical practice? I did read one study also that, you know, if you just went into the general population and measured vitamin D in a healthy population, up to 30% of people will have a vitamin D deficiency and it's very hard to find what is causation, what is correlation when it comes to vitamin D. I mean, when it comes to skin diseases, maybe a diseased skin is just poor at, you know, synthesizing vitamin D. Do you think that could be a case? Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. And because I think the literature, vitamin D has been postulated as a risk factor for so many diseases, not just skin diseases, but autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, SLEs, a whole bunch of cancers, and also cardiovascular disease. So like you said, whether it is a risk factor or whether it's just correlation, um, for example, being associated with general ill health or disease in general. Yeah, and I think the the gold standard would, would be to see whether vitamin D supplementation would actually improve any of these diseases. But as you said, the data is still very, very iffy on that one. And I think it'll be quite interesting to see whether there are any conditions out there that are not associated with the vitamin D. I think that might give us a clue. Yeah, I think that'll be interesting. One thing I feel is that I guess it's quite difficult to do studies with vitamin D because confounders like dietary exposure, sunlight exposure, these things can be quite hard to control for and adjust for. Yeah, so if our audience are wondering how they can improve their vitamin D status, what would you suggest? (laughs) I was going to ask you that question actually. I mean, do you screen for vitamin D and do you replace it when you see patients with low vitamin D in the clinic? 
I've actually started doing that for especially my telogen effluvium patients. There have been some studies that have linked vitamin D receptor polymorphisms to chronic TE. So for my patients with chronic TE and even some with acute TE, I do screen vitamin D. And some of my autoimmune patients, like patients with alopecia areata that is recalcitrant in the treatment, I do tend to screen vitamin D as well. But you know, this is not part of any protocols, but I've just been doing it just to see what it's like in our general population. How about yourself? I mean, we used to screen it a lot when we do general medicine because a lot of patients that come in with falls, weakness, fractures, we do it. In dermatology, I mainly do it for patients with very severe eczema. But as you said, I think in the general population, everyone would have low vitamin D levels. And now, I guess we are all very sun conscious, so we also stay out of the sun a lot. And I guess, therefore, it's more important for us, even if we don't have any disease, to be conscious about whether we're getting enough dietary source of vitamin D, for example, through fish, red meat, or certain fortified cereals, or even just oral supplementations if our vitamin D levels are not adequate. Yeah, I guess this is a area where we really have to watch this space and see how the science can improve our understanding of vitamin D and skin diseases. Yeah, I think it'll be good and more research is definitely needed in this area. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you so much, Ellie, for bringing this topic to us today. No problems. Thanks for having me again. Okay, bye. Bye. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Nkosa Delova, MD, who is a dermatologist from Durban, South Africa. She's the dean and the first American woman to head the University of KwaZulu-Natal School of Clinical Medicine and the inaugural president of the Women's Dermatological Society in South Africa. She's also the recipient of the Maria Duran Award for 2021, awarded for her contribution to the treatment of dermatological conditions affecting women and children. Um, and she's also on the board of the International League of the Dermatological Societies. It's a long list of um, accolades, Nkosa. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Nice to meet you, Etienne. Uh, thank you. And I, I'm very excited to speak to you because um, just like you, my interest is in hair diseases. And I understand you discovered a gene in central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia at one point. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah. This, is, uh, this was amazing collaborative work that we did with uh, two of my colleagues, that is uh, Professor Amy McMichael from North Carolina in the U.S., as well as Professor Ellie uh, Sprecher, as well as Offa from Israel uh, University. So we, we, we found that, you know, you know, a third of the patients that we analyzed had this PAD3 gene, which, we, uh, which was autosomal dominant, and therefore that actually helped us to try and uh, assess family members of patients who have triple uh, CA or central centrifugal secretarial alopecia. But also in addition, what we found was that most of the patients um, who were using chemicals or there was a lot of pulling and mechanical traction had more uh, severity of the disease as well as a rapid progression of CCCA. Oh, that's very interesting. When I was reading your research, what struck me was that there was quite a high percentage. Do you think this gene is actually involved in the normal variation of hair texture and curliness in Africans? Uh, not really, because I mean, we all know that the structure of the hair is the normal, the, you know, the, the normal biochemistry and physiology of the hair is normal amongst all ethnicities. It's just the, 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 the mechanical or morphological appearance of the hair that is different. The African hair is curly. But uh, we think that just like any other conditions, these patients who have this uh, uh, positive gene are predisposed 
to get this particular type of hair loss. But in terms of the hair structure, everything is the same. Mm, okay. And I think you mentioned earlier, but there's a huge part of this condition. There's actually an epidemic of weaves and hot tools. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's what we found. In fact, I had two families uh, where I had one, they had one family had twins and their uh, siblings. And we found that the siblings were just keeping their hair natural without any chemical or any mechanical manipulation. The progression of the disease or the, the, the severity of the disease was much, much milder compared to those who had, uh, were relaxing their hair or using chemicals or using weaves, uh, synthetic hair, and using uh, extensions on the hair. And in fact, there's a study that was published by, I think, the L'Oreal group showing that using weaves and, um, you know, causes sort of mechanical fracture on the hair shaft. And that can actually cause breakage of the hair, fall of the hair shaft. Because, you know, with African hair, the hair shaft is twisted at angles and making those uh, angular areas quite uh, prone to breakage. Mm, yes, I think there's a theme in your research because I know there's a pressure for African women to keep their hair a certain way and um, the discrimination that people get with natural hair. I think um, your other research about pigmentation also has the same theme where people try to lighten their skin to look more socially acceptable. What do you think about um, this kind of practices in the beauty industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a real problem and it's multifactorial. And of course, it's not only affecting Africa, as you also mentioned earlier on, that you have a similar problem in Singapore where people are using skin lighteners to, you know, to change their skin color. It's a problem in Africa, it's a problem in Asia, Middle East and South America. So uh, in South Africa, there's a study that we conducted and we looked at African and Indian women because this is a group that tends to use skin bleaching creams. And by the way, you know, we define skin bleaching as the act of changing one's normal skin color, you know, from one uh, complexion yes. to a lighter shade. So what we found in our study that the prevalence of this was about 30%, meaning that 30% uh, uh, of the individuals, that the women that we interviewed, were using skin lightening creams to change their skin color, that is skin bleaching. But 70% of them actually were treating um, skin conditions that needed, that had a problem with hyperpigmentation. For example, mesalasma, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation from either acne or eczema or psoriasis. So there was a legitimate cause for using skin bleaching creams. But however, because creams that are used for pigmentation are very expensive and some patients can't afford them, and therefore they end up using the creams that are, are, are cheap, that they buy from spice shops, from the uh, markets as well as from the street vendors and some unscrupulous pharmacists. Yes, and those end up containing a lot of very harmful chemicals such as lead and high doses of hydroquinone. Absolutely, they have high concentrations of hydroquinone, up to 10%. They also have mercury and they also have corticosteroids and some creams. We analyzed about 40 creams here in South Africa and we found that some of these creams uh, had uh, uh, you know, all these ingredients in one product and they were used for a long time without a sunscreen, without any uh, monitoring. So that, that's an issue. But again, we do feel that there's a whole lot of influence, especially amongst the young group as well, and middle-aged women. And of course, men these days want to look lighter because of social media, because they look at celebrities who are fair, they look at models who are lighter in complexion, and they feel, and there's a pressure to, you know, to, to look like them. So a lot needs to be done by the media as well as, you know, Google. In fact, I had an interview uh, recently with Google 
and and we're talking about this point that maybe all adverts that have anything to do with skin bleaching they shouldn't be allowed because we need to use the same medium that they use to uh, market their products to inform our our consumers because it's all really about uh, informing our consumers and we could even you know appeal to companies where we can have a list a link on the on google where if you want to know whether a product is uh, is uh, is problematic or not you can just click and you can see that you shouldn't be buying this pro this product because people just sell their stuff now on online yes i think that's very important and i think dermatologists have a huge role in public education for all this as well Absolutely. And also, it says here that you established a Dermatology Registrar Association of South Africa to mentor dermatology registrars. What advice do you have for mentoring a diverse dermatology community? The basic concepts of, of mentoring are really the same, but we need to individualize the people that we're speaking to. We need to find out what, what uh, kind of uh, interest do they have and also try and, and support uh, uh, young dermatologists to do what they are passionate about, not impose on them in terms of what they want to do, whether it be research. For example, if I'm with the two of us are interested in research and we're mentoring a, a young dermatologist, we shouldn't try and uh, channel them towards her. They should choose a topic that they are interested in, and then we try and support them uh, through, to go through that uh, 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 particular discipline that they're interested in. And secondly, there's also when there's young residents, some of them want to go to private practice, some for financial reasons or family support, some of them uh, want to pursue academia, some want to go to private, but they'll come back to academia later on when they have been able to fulfill their financial uh, demands. So we need to find out from our mentees what is it that they want and how we can assist them make time for them and make it comfortable for them to approach us also don't impose on them and try also to 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 encourage them i mean to understand their diverse backgrounds and diverse communities and diverse uh, demands and also talk about general things about your life and some of the challenges that you've had because mentees have a tendency to think that everything is going well for you no it's not like that they need to hear the good and bad the negative and the positives Yes, that's very, very wise advice. And also, um, I hear that you were actually in Singapore in the 1990s here at our centre, the National Skin Centre. What was your experience and what do you remember about that time? Oh gosh, that was the best time of my academic career. Oh wow. I remember, yes, Professor Go. Uh, oh gosh, Dr. Wong, I think she's from... Uh, uh-huh. Wong uh, Sudi? Malaysia. Yes, from Malaysia. Uh, Joyce and uh, um, uh, Roy Chan, this amazing time, and I can still remember. In fact, I think most of my academic achievements and personal growth was influenced so much by my uh, brief stay in Singapore. They were so welcoming, they were so supportive, and Prof Go, you know, was my mentor. And from that time, since when I came back here, I would just contact him and he would give advice anytime. Much of what I have achieved now can be attributed to my experience in Singapore. And I still keep uh, links, by the way, uh, with people and some of the colleagues that we meet at conferences. It's really been an amazing time. Wow, yes, that's very heartwarming to hear. (laughs) Yes, and I would actually encourage young dermatologists, if possible, during their training or just after finishing their residency, you know, you have to get out of your comfort zone and just go and see and explore other countries. You know, it could be in Africa, it could be in Europe, it could be in America, because you just get to see how other people live and get to understand and have this uh, very diverse uh, outlook about life. And that makes you also 
makes it easy for you to interact with anyone, anybody, anytime from anywhere. Yes, I totally agree. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Nkosa, for coming on my podcast. It was very, very interesting and I learned a lot from you today. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Etienne Wong. It was lovely to chat to you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was the official podcast of the WCD. Don't forget to follow us on all our socials on Facebook, Instagram at WCD2023 Singapore, and check out our WCD website, WCD2023Singapore.org for more updates and content on the WCD. And until next time, stay safe and use sunblock.